Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, a making instinct and a craftful life. Welcome, whether you've been following along for years or are new to this space. Thank you for choosing to spend some of your time in my company. I'm often overwhelmed at the sheer number of podcasts available to us, so I really appreciate everybody who tunes in to listen to my musings and joins in with conversation. To anybody popping in for the first time, my name is Meg and I live in London in the UK. I'm a maker, writer and generally curious soul. In my podcasts, I muse about my making life in the widest sense of the term. As well as talking about what I am making, I like to delve into the why and wherefore of the materials and my processes and tease out some of the environmental, ethical and psychological considerations involved in my creative practice. If the end of 2020 felt a bit odd, it's felt like a doubly strange start to the year. As things feel very surreal at the moment for a mix of reasons, I thought I would pop on for a chat and maybe offer a little escape from reality if life is feeling as surreal, intense or burdensome where you are. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore between each word. And anything I mention on the podcast will be in the show notes, which you can find at mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. So what do I have in store today? Well, today's offering is a mix of the functional, the frivolous and a fail, and also a handful of questions. So I hope you have a warm drink or a seasonal tipple to hand, and let's begin. One day back in December, I was feeling particularly glum, as Covid measures were getting more restrictive, the days were dark, and as I was cold all the time, both chilled when I was out walking due to the bitter east winds that blow up the Thames, and damp cold when I was inside because our home, like a lot of Victorian homes, is incredibly badly insulated and hard to heat. So, as I was hugging shawls, hot water bottles and a mug of tea, I made a very no-nonsense decision. To hell with aesthetics and trends, I would use my skills to keep the cold at bay. Layers of cardigans and shawls were obviously not enough to tackle the chill I feel due to a mix of Victorian architecture, a damp climate and various health issues. I would therefore need to try a different tack and tackle the underlayers, And so Operation Chillblain was born. This operation wouldn't be an overnight thing and it would involve several approaches. I knew that the closer I wear wool to the skin, the toastier I feel, so woolen undies, or base layers to use the modern term, would be an important line of defence. Also, as I'm considerably more comfortable in dresses and skirts rather than trousers, I needed to find a way to add wool to my lower limbs, and that means long woolly socks. And looking to the past for inspirations, to a time when houses were often barely heated and people didn't move around in air-conditioned vehicles, I decided that future autumn and winter garments would need to involve a mix of woolen dresses and skirts, and layers to trap air under them, i.e. the return of the petticoat. And I'm not talking about clingy polyester affairs. I needed an easy, warming wind to start with that would make a quick difference to my walks and grocery runs. I therefore consulted the Instagram hive with a question I never thought I would hear myself ask. 
Could anybody recommend a pattern for leg warmers that actually stay up? As a child of the 70s and early 80s, I associate leg warmers with garishly coloured acrylic yarn, TV aerobic classes and cheesy grainy television shows. In my opinion, leg warmers are aesthetically one of the least appealing accessories I can imagine, so to actually consider making a pair gives you an idea of how desperate I was not to feel miserably cold. The Instagram knitters who follow me took this unexpected question in their stride and came up trumps. Not just with suggestions for simple functional patterns, but ones that lent themselves to the kind of lofty, plump, woolly wool that fills me with joy. I decided to start Operation Chillblain with the Olali Leg Warmers by Rachel Kieselberg, which Helen, aka Greenhouse Knitter, recommended. Helen told me that she wears the gaiters when out on her bicycle, and as she cycles in Yorkshire, a region that does cold weather pretty well, that struck me as a pretty good endorsement. So I trawled through the wool pantry and pulled out two skeins of naturally dark Corriadel double knit wool that were left over from knitting a sweater some years ago. As I have heavy calves, I was fully expecting to have to size up the pattern, but as these leg warmers consist of a broken rib style pattern worked with slip stitches, they contained a lot of stretch, even for my calves. In the end, I only needed to work one extra increase at the fullest part of my calves, which I then decreased again just before the cuff ribbing to reflect the shape of my legs. I also made the rib section at the top of the leg a little longer for maximum cling factor, and cast off loosely using the knit two stitches through back of loop method so that the cuff edge would not snap when I pulled it over my calves. This pattern is incredibly simple with a short stitch repeat worked over four rows, but I did have to rip back a couple of times purely due to the fibro fog making me incapable of remembering whether I just knit row two or row three. Although my brain was struggling to remember what I did a minute ago, it was alert enough to register the thermal potential of the stitch pattern. The inclusion of slip stitches creates little pockets in the fabric that traps air, much like the weave in modern technical fibres. So I filed this stitch pattern away as one to include in future knits, maybe on the sleeves of a cardigan or jumper as I often feel the cold on my arms. I'm happy to report that wearing these leg warmers over tights or leggings has made all the difference when out walking, and I've even been known to ignore the fact that I look naff and keep them on in in the house too. Knitting this utterly functional accessory made me realise two things. First, knitting footwear to cover my whole lower leg rather than just the ankle is not the bore I thought it would be. One of the few advantages of having short stubby legs is that knee length leg warmers or socks don't take that long to knit. Obviously I was knitting the Olali leg warmers in double knit wool at a worsted weight tension rather than in a four ply yarn but they still felt less of an endeavour than sleeves. Secondly the leg warmers actually give me more wearing pleasure than hand knit socks and this is almost certainly down to the feel of the wool. Socks, even my non-nylon socks, are knit from tightly spun compact yarn, which feels sturdy, but not excessively comfortable or warm. By contrast, my Corriadel leg warmers don't just feel toasty, they also feel cosy and comforting because the wool feels snugly. This realisation has of course set my mind worrying about what this might mean for my next pair of socks. 
So watch this space as I sense there may be another twist to my sock experiment coming soon. The leg warmers are a highly functional start to Operation Chillblain, but the second project involves a function meeting frivolity. Back on that dark December day, I didn't only put a call out for leg warmer suggestions, I also trawled the internet for patterns for woolly vests. I should first clarify the terminology. We Brits traditionally use the term vest to refer to the garment worn between the skin and the shirt, rather than the sleeveless layer worn over a shirt or top, which we might call a waistcoat, sleeveless cardigan or a knitted tank top, depending on its key features. So I searched the interweb for vest patterns. Vests were once a commonly worn garment, but in 2020 the search threw up pretty poor pickings. Admittedly, I could only search Ravelry in small bite-sized bursts, but the fact that the pattern database doesn't even include a category for this garment in its intimate section spoke volumes about the decline in its usage. I ended up trawling through the section of sleeveless tops knit in fine yarns, from lace weight to four-ply, for patterns that might be suitable to be worn as a base layer, and I only turned up a few handful of garments. Most of the search results in that category were definitely designed as summer tops. This is, in many ways, a reflection of the times and societies we live in. In the days before ubiquitous central heating and temperature-controlled homes and offices, wearing a vest made perfect sense from a warmth perspective. And it continues to do so for those struggling with fuel poverty or environmentally-minded souls who prefer to layer up rather than turn the heating up. Also, a cotton, linen or even wool layer between the skin and a garment means less laundering of the everyday garment, something that was definitely a consideration when washing was a weekly chore done by hand, but arguably no less relevant in an age when energy saving is part of the basket of responses needed to address climate change. Most of the patterns I turned up, and pretty much all of the ones that appealed to my aesthetic, reflected the bygone days of vest wearing. They were mostly PDFs or archive records of vintage patterns, updated versions of such patterns, or patterns inspired by such designs. Scanning the details of these patterns, I noted several common features. The historic patterns often came as combinations rather than just a vest, so a romper or bodysuit to use in modern terms. They mostly used lace or three-ply, aka light fingering yarn. They were mostly drafted for, for small sizes and often only in one size and they were typically worn with anything between four to six inches of negative ease. All of this meant that knitting my first vest was not going to be an off-the-peg experience. That said, I wasn't too daunted because a closer inspection of the patterns I already had, like a couple in Susan Crawford's A Stitch in Time book, or the ones I could access through free archives, revealed that vests have pretty simple shapes, once you knock off the combination bit. They are either just a tube, often knitted as front and back and sewn together, or they are a tube that is shaped inwards for the waist and out again for the bust, and often this drawing in at the waist was achieved, at least in part, by knitting a band of skinny rib over a couple of inches. So, having established that knitting a vest, even without a pattern, is totally durable, I thought, why not make it what I want it to be? 
No miles of stocking stitch interspersed with a bit of rib for me. Let's add a smattering of frivolity, i.e. lace. All the more so as my friend Lee of the Luli podcast had determined that lockdown 3.0 was such a dispiriting prospect that we needed a frivolous make-along, something that would allow us to indulge pure frivolity and whimsy. So I knew the next project in Operation Chillblain would be a vest. I had worked out broadly what it would look like. I had decided to reduce the negative ease to about two inches. I determined which lace pattern I would use and how I would construct the garment, i.e. knitting it in the round. The final piece of the puzzle, before I could actually start swatching and crunching numbers, was to pick a wool. And I was a bit stumped here. Anybody who has followed me on the podcast or over on Instagram knows that softness is not exactly a key consideration for me when choosing wool. But as I would be wearing this garment just over my bra, so basically next to my skin, softness did need to come into play. I did some research into options for lace weight, three-ply soft walls and shortlisted potential ones. And then I crowdsourced ideas and experiences. Not from all Instagram knitters, but from a group of friends in my Instagram direct messages. This involved a rather fun evening of virtual banter about the merits of different walls and suggestions for ones I'd not even considered. My friends were very forbearing, discounting the superwashed yarns of their collective experience as A. I generally avoid them and B. It's precisely the yarn's natural wooliness that gives the fibre its warmth in my opinion. We settled on a few options. At the heartier end of the spectrum, Jameson and Smith's two-ply lace weight, which is a blend of Shetland wool and lamb's wool. John Arben's knit-by-numbers four-ply merino at the softest end of the spectrum. Or Kettle Yanko's Northern blue-faced Leicester fingering yarn as a middle soft but quite luxurious option. As the Northern BFL felt a little bit extravagant for a prototype, I settled on the merino. As I was mulling over my John Arben shade cards, though, I remembered I had a couple of skeins of Erica Knight's wool local in my wool pantry. I had bought this BFL to make a lightweight summer cardigan to be worn over bare arms, so I knew it was soft. I just wondered whether it would be next to midriff soft, like Ketelyanko's Northium. In the interest of using what I already have, I decided it was worth swatching to test out this BFL before ordering something new. So I duly knit a swatch using a simple catrafoil eyelet pattern, an almost clover-like pattern that makes a nod to Prantel jersey. Most of the vintage patterns I'd seen were worked on small needles, a 2.5 or 275mm, or US 1.5 to 2. At 450 metres, or approximately 490 yards per 100 grams, this wool is more of a three-ply than a four-ply, so small needles would have worked. But knowing my preferences, I didn't want a yarn that was too tight, particularly as this felt like worsted spun yarn. I was really keen for the vest not to end up feeling like chainmail. So I opted for three millimetre needles, or US 2.5, to start my swatching. With these, I achieved a tension of 21.5 stitches and 42 rows for a 10cm or 4 inch square swatch, which meant that although I would have to knit many rows to cover my torso, the stitch count for my circular tube would not be too scary. 
More importantly, the resulting fabric was not too gappy and had a pleasing amount of drape, so I decided that the 3mm needles would do. After blocking the swatch, I popped it between my ribcage and bra band in Woolworks Wool Explorer fashion to test the wearability. After an initial crunch, I forgot the swatch was there entirely and only remembered it when I got undressed at night. On this basis, I decided that the Erica Knight light fingering yarn would do the trick for the first iteration of a woolly vest. It was not until I sat down to record this podcast that I realised that Wool Local is not a 100% BFL. It's actually a BFL and Masson blend, but it's still very soft, obviously. Having worked out how many stitches I needed in total and how many pattern repeats there would be in each of the front and the back, all I needed to do then was work out where to start the first stitch repeat to ensure that the pattern was centred on the body. As this is an undergarment that nobody will see, this step was probably not strictly necessary, but I know myself and I know my level of fussiness. I had picked the cutrefoil pattern partly as it alluded to a pointel fabric commonly used in the vests of my childhood, but also because it involves a small stitch repeat, only eight stitches, and a relatively short row repeat, 16 rows. I've mentioned before that when working a pattern up from scratch, I prefer patterns that run over a small number of stitches and rows, as they are relatively easier to incorporate in the mass of a pattern. The total number of stitches I needed for my size based on my tension conveniently turned out to be an even number of pattern repeats and a few balancing stitches on each side. Balancing stitches are the difference between the total number of stitches and the nearest full multiple of the stitch repeat that fits into that total. So I set about casting on the stitches, closed the row in the round, knit six rows of garter stitch and launched into the pattern. After a full pattern repeat, I realised I'd made a classic error though. Despite taking care, I had still somehow managed to twist my knitting when closing in the round, so I had to rip out and start again. Second time round, with over 200 stitches on the needle, I decided to play safe and knit the garter band flat as it would be easier to close up stitches without twisting them when there was a slender ribbon rather than a wiggly earthworm. After getting the stitches properly aligned and closing the round, I enthusiastically moved on to the lace pattern. After nearly one and a half repeats though, I realised that something didn't look quite right. Closer inspection told me my foggy brain had dropped another clanger. Even though I was going to knit the vest in the round, I decided to just knit a flat swatch because as I'm working this up from scratch, Ultimately, the row is something that I can make up as I go along. That said, when swatching flat, I could easily differentiate the purl rows from the plain knit row that I needed to insert between each half pattern repeat. Once I moved on to working the garment in the round, my foggy brain had forgotten about this and was merely knitting one row instead of three rows after each half lace repeat. As a result, my clothes looked really cramped. By this point, Weary Meg got the upper hand over Fussy Meg, and I just made a design choice. I decided to finish the half repeat I was on, so that I had a total of three rows of clovers, then pop in six rows of garter stitch, call the whole first section the hem detail, 
and then move on with the properly spaced clover pattern for the upper body. I think this fudge is worth mentioning, as I know I can come across as a tenacious perfectionist, but believe me, I have my limits and moments when I just go, blow this, fudge it and move on, particularly as this will be an unseen prototype of a vest to keep me warm. I've now reached the point where I'm incorporating a hint of waist shaping. The balancing stitches come in handy here as they allowed me to include a couple of decreases without eating into the lace pattern repeat. I've not yet decided how I will finish the neck edging and shoulder straps, whether I will knit them and if so how, or whether I'll just cast off and sew on some ribbon for straps, which seems to have been a common approach in vintage patterns. I think much will depend on how my yardage of wool works out. Wool Local comes in 100 gram skeins that each contain 450 metres, or 490 yards more or less. So I should be okay, but yardage is always a bit of an unknown when working up designs without a pattern. For completeness, this wool costs £12.95 per skein, so price-wise that's about on a par with the cost of 100 grams of Jameson Spindrift or Jameson and Smith 2-ply jumper weight. I'm looking forward to getting this first vest prototype off the needles and putting it through its paces. Not just because February can be a chilly month around here, but also because I'm eager to assess how this more traditional garment works. As always, I'll be reporting back with my findings. I've mentioned some foggy fudges already, but I thought I would use my next project, which tangentially also forms part of Operation Chillblain, to talk about a failure. Mostly because fails, fudges and flops are something we probably don't talk about enough. And many knitters and sewers, particularly those who are newer to the crafts, could easily forget the false impression that everything we turn our hand to works out well. So let's talk about my first attempt at making the Francine dress. This is not a new-to-me pattern. It's a dress version of the same top by Merchant and Mills that I've made several times already. The rationale for making this dress is that I have for some time now wanted to add a sleeved dress to my wardrobe both for winter warmth and summer protection against the sun. But I've been struggling to make the sleeves on the trapeze dress, my other go-to pattern, work for me. So I decided to have a go at making the Francine dress instead because I've already mastered the top. As bodices and sleeves are the trickiest things to fit, making the dress version should be relatively easy. Ultimately, I would like to make a version of this dress out of a wool-suiting fabric for winter. But the interim aim is to make a linen Francine dress, as I have a quantity of linen in my fabric chest. Making a linen dress in winter may seem a bit daft, but my thinking is that I can wear it in combination with a skirt. So I'd use the bodice as a shirt and the skirt of the dress as a petticoat. And of course, come spring and summer, I can wear it as a dress on its own. Although turning the top into a dress is relatively easy, I knew I would need to tweak the hip measurements so I could sit down comfortably, but I wasn't sure by how much. Also, I really wanted the dress to have the full Francine neckline, complete with the collar, but I wanted to test a different sequence of construction to avoid having to seam at 2mm, or barely 1 16th of an inch, alongside a fraying linen edge. So, between the sizing and concept testing issues, I decided not to risk beautiful linen without making a 12 first. 
I had some dead stock cotton in my supplies, which truth be told, I'd only really bought to make a shirt because I loved the colour. Think warm muted red brown, much like the ochres on ancient cave paintings. As the fabric was sold by the metres, I had two metres, so I reckoned I could squeeze a dress out of it. Maybe slightly shorter in length than I would like, but enough for the purpose of a twelve. So after I transferred the front and back bodies from the top onto a new sheet of paper and graded out the hips for my size, I cut the fabric, transferred the markings with tailor's chalk, including the cut line at the neck opening, which I would cut later in the process rather than at the start. I also marked the wrong sides of the fabric with chalk to make sure I could differentiate right from wrong sides when fitting the collar to the dress and facings. This took me the best part of Saturday afternoon, so I decided to hold off sewing till Sunday when I was fresh and alert. Next day, I joined the shoulders and worked on the neckline, facing and collar. The plan was to stop for a late lunch and tackle setting in the sleeves, never a favourite task, after lunch before seaming the rest of the dress to check for fit. I meticulously finished the shoulder seams because I wanted the garment to function as a wearable twirl. Then I joined the facing pieces, first to each other and then to the collar. This process was slowed down slightly as the centre points I'd marked with chalk had long since disappeared, but I managed to get things to align with careful measuring. After a judicious tea break, I joined the collar with the attached facings to the main dress. Next up was a tricky process of pinning and tacking together the vertical, not yet cut line of both the dress and the facing. That's the line that runs from the top of the neck to the lowest point of the v-neck opening. I needed to pin these together, tack them and then pin the surrounding area together to make sure everything was secure. Only after this would I cut down the line I had tacked together, flip everything inside out and, hopefully, create the neckline that had originally attracted me to the pattern. The slippiness of the chalk marks on the fabric made this a tricky exercise, but I managed to get everything tacked down and secure, and stitch the seam that would attach facing to dress at a very tidy 2mm from the yet-to-be-cut line. I was quite excited at how meticulous this was, but, to use the old-fashioned saying, pride comes before a fall. After I'd snipped down the cut line and flipped the interface inside out, I realised I'd made an almighty gaff. I had paid such close attention to getting the facing and front neckline to line up that I hadn't realised that I'd pinned and stitched the wrong sides of the dress and facings together instead of the right side. Yes, after turning everything inside out, I had a collar, but I also had visible seams and hems. As the fabric and the 2mm seam allowance were not going to stand up to being ripped out and restitched, I knew that this was not going to be a wearable twirl. Rather miffed, I decided that the best thing to do would be to seam the sides to check if at least the grading was right around the hips and the garment would fit. As it did fit, and the dress worked well in the back without my usual swayback issues, this somehow made the collar mistake even worse. Physically and emotionally exhausted by this point, I went into a bit of a strop. I crumpled the dress up, shoved it in the pile for the bin, berated myself for my stupidity, foggy brain and what have you. And because I was tired and in the doldrums, naturally other gremlins came out of the woodwork, 
The ones that sneer and poke at my body image issues, the ones that mock the slow rate at which my skills seem to develop, and the ones that push the useless perfectionism button. By the time I was soaking in the bath to ease my back and try to decompress from my annoyance, the spiteful gremlins had done their work and self-doubt crept in. Maybe this gaffe was proof that my process hack would not actually work, and who was I to think I knew better than the pattern writer? At that point, though, whether through practice or something that straddles resignation and self-preservation, I did the only sensible thing, which would ultimately put the gremlins back in their box. I begrudgingly pulled the twirl out of the rubbish pile and hung it up, and decided I would analyse it again in the cold light of day. So why share this lesson cheery episode from my January sewing? Well, I regularly get direct messages from people who say how useful it is to hear me share the frustrations and the two steps forward, one step back process involved in dressmaking, and how it makes them feel less daunted or dispirited about their own sewing exploits. Or even that it just makes them feel normal to know that there are others out there who experience sewing disappointments. So I thought I would share this 12 fail because I want anybody who has despondently tossed a half-finished garment aside, lamenting their skills and blaming their body, to feel, well, normal, to feel capable and that their endeavours, with all the slip-ups, are worthwhile. After all, nobody is born knowing how to make clothes. We become sewers, dressmakers and tailors precisely through practice – through repeated and sometimes mind-numbingly slow skill building, and yes, also through failing but coming back and tackling the project again and again. When I picked up the twirl after a couple of days, my head was definitely in a different place. Yes, I was frustrated that I didn't have a tangible garment to show for my weekend of work. Yes, I was still edgy about my body issues, and no, I had still not made peace with the fibrofog that scrambles my concentration and cognitive function. But when I looked at the twirl, I realised. I had nailed the fit around the hips. Yes, I had fudged up the neckline because of a lapse of concentration, but I had still proved that my theoretical approach to stitching before cutting and turning the collar worked in practice. I had also realised that my current tailor's chalk is particularly slippy, so for future garments I would need to thread trace any critical lines, centres and fold lines and also find a way to mark the wrong side of the fabric, which I ended up doing with tiny safety pins. Fourthly, I knew exactly where the pitfalls were in the process, particularly in light of my brain fog, so I produced a detailed steps list for the next iteration, complete with tea breaks, day breaks and double check prompts to avoid the pitfalls. Yes, this is tedious, but so much about living with fibromyalgia is tedious, and such detailed steps list do help when the brain feels like it is wading through a vat of molasses. Next, I realised that I had lost two metres of fabric, although I can still harvest some future twirls, but the quality of the fabric was not really that nice, and it only cost me £4 a metre. Much better to notch that up to experience than waste fabric that cost me nearly £20 a metre. Another realisation was that yes, it was frustrating, but it was not nearly as frustrating, depressing or self-loathing inducing as shopping for ready-to-wear clothes, if of course we could do that in person in these days of Covid. And, the gaff aside, I am actually capable of stitching a very presentable collar with a 2mm seam allowance that turns beautifully. Several weeks have passed since this dress 12 failure, and the torrent of feelings it induced. 
I've since carefully cut a Francine dress from a beautiful mule-coloured linen which I got from With This Cloth, a dressmaker and fabric shop owner whose work, style and ethos I really admire. Then, over several weeks, I made the Francine dress, stitching two or three seams at a time with lots of breaks and many contented hours of hand-stitching to finish seams invisibly, encase raw edges and hem the garment. I'm really thrilled with the finished product, and possibly all the more so because of the frustratingly bumpy start. This dress doesn't just reflect many hours of work, it encapsulates years of practice, of taking the setbacks and failures, learning from them, and building on them to produce a garment that I'm proud of, that will be a key piece in my wardrobe, and will double up as a shirt and petticoat combination in the winter. I'm going to add a little segment to the podcast, which I hope will be a semi-regular interactive thing. It's a question section, but not the typical Ask Me Anything segment we see or hear on podcasts. Rather, it's an opportunity for me to ask and crowdsource ideas and information from you, initially based on my own specific interests, but hopefully in due course also based on what you want to know about. The idea stems from the banter I had with friends on Instagram about truly next-to-the-skin soft yarn for a vest. As well as obviously gaining useful suggestions and feeling very cared for by the experience, it also struck me that due to the lack of in-person gatherings and events, there are lots of little throwaway conversations and questions that aren't happening. Questions along the lines of what would you do about this or how would you approach XYZ or where do you source this type of material from or find that kind of tool. So I thought I would get the ball rolling and ask you, my listeners, for some practical suggestions, insights or recommendations based on your experience. And as this is a two-way thing, I'll find a way to share the feedback and delve into things that seem to strike a particular chord. The first question is very much related to Operation Chilblane and my desire to sew more woolen skirts and dresses. And it's possibly something that sewers who are interested in historical costumes or historical techniques may have some insights in. But obviously, please feel free to chip in with any thoughts you have, even if historical sewing is not your thing. As I wear tights and leggings for much of the year, my dresses and skirts fall into two categories. On the one hand, linen garments that don't need lining, as linen doesn't ride up upon contact with nylon tights. On the other hand, corduroy and wool garments that I've been lining with Bremsilk, which is a cupro-style hybrid in that it's produced by humans but from plant material. I am, however, keen to move away from this fabric as it really doesn't wear particularly well. Like many viscose materials, it frays and perishes at the seams upon intensive wearing. Instead, I would like to move to using natural fibres for my lining, things like cotton or linen, and line the garments using the historical flat lining technique. So rather than making a second skirt or dress in the lining fabric, which is stitched to the main garment wrong sides together, flat lining involves cutting the lining and placing it directly on the fabric panels, then constructing the garment, and then finally finishing the raw edges by felling down the raw seam. So my question is, do garments flat-lined with cotton ride up upon contact with tights? Or is the weight of the garment due to this lining technique and the structure the technique creates enough to prevent contact with tights? 
If this is not the case, I will obviously use linen as my lining material, but for things like wool suiting, an organic cotton voile is likely to be a lighter choice. It is of course possible that most historical costuming sewers or history bounders get around this issue by wearing layers of linen and petticoats between the outer garment and any stockings, but I thought I would ask just in case anybody has any practical insights. My second question is once again linked to my efforts to keep chills at bay. I'm looking for a source of 100% merino jersey to make wool leggings. I know this fabric is readily available in places like New Zealand, but so far my efforts to find a UK stockist of this type of jersey have come to nothing. A lady in Sweden has recommended her source, which I can use as a fallback, but in light of the mayhem that Brexit is causing to international orders, I'm eager to find a UK-based stockist if possible. Or if anybody knows of a stockist in Ireland, Belgium or France, that would also be quite useful for the days when travel is possible again. The next question is once again for sewers who are used to working with historical techniques. I'm considering using some tarlatan, which is a stiffened muslin interfacing, to repair or rather rework a pair of trousers. I have used tarlatan or mull before in bookbinding and millinery, and in both these crafts there is a lot of onus on working with the grain or on the bias, depending on the project in question. I've seen podcasters who make historical or historically inspired garments use tarlatan regularly, but I can't recall any of them mentioning anything about the grain line. That could be because as sewers they take it as red that you match the grain line of the tarlatan to the grain line of your fabric. Or it could be because it doesn't really matter, and I was wondering if anybody who has worked with this material in dressmaking has any advice on this point. My final question is aimed at UK-based listeners and is utterly mundane, but very much linked to my approach of take care of what you have rather than replacing it. My fabric shears are desperately in need of sharpening. Now, in non-Covid times, I am fortunate enough to be able to walk to the local sewing machine repair shop, where they also sharpen scissors. But in these days of lockdown, I'm considering sending my shears off for sharpening. Can anybody recommend a reliable service that deals with such orders online? And on a practical level, how do you handle the safety questions at the post office? You know when they ask you what the package contains for safety reasons and wince if you mention anything as sharp as a fountain pen nib. On that practical note, I think I will call it a day. I know that many people around the world are in their nth iteration of lockdown and that many, like me, are finding it particularly hard this time round not least of all because of the dark, cold months of winter. I hope that you are managing to keep safe and that making, unmaking, musing about making, stroking materials, reorganising supplies, or just having a chat, moan or rant with fellow makers, even if only virtually, is helping to lift the spirit a little or at least provide an opportunity to breathe out for a bit. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy many pleasant making-related moments whatever that looks like for you right now. Bye.